0: Good afternoon church family. I think there are some things in this life and maybe even in this service that want to keep us from hearing the word of God. Might you say the same? Might you say the same? We don't hear it. That's right. Now I would say, I would, I would posit to you this, that if we did not know before, one thing that the year 2020 has taught many of us is that we don't have any idea what's going on much like the mics. We have no idea what's going on. And yet, that is not a reason to be hopeless. That is not a reason to live without joy. That is not a reason to live without the expectation that God is able to work in every situation. This coming Saturday, some of you guys are going to celebrate. Some of you are going to celebrate on Friday because of a certain musical is coming out. But some of you are going to celebrate a certain Independence Day on Saturday. July 4th is Saturday. July 4th, 1776, some of the forefathers of the United States signed what they call the Declaration of Independence. It was penned by Thomas Jefferson, and it was uh, approved on July 4th, 1776. But the reality is, those colonies that signed that Declaration of Independence did not then experience the freedom and the independence that Declaration proclaimed. In fact, it wasn't until a Battle of Yorktown in 1781 and a Treaty of Paris in 1783 that Great Britain finally recognized the independence that the United Colonies had declared years before independence that they said stated like this we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights that among these are life liberty and the pursuit of happiness they concluded by saying that these united colonies are and of right ought to be free and independent states that's what they declared to be true But it took a lot of work, a lot of fighting, a lot of action, a lot of unity, and a lot of commitment to make that actually come to pass. Sometimes the declaration of independence does not mean independence. You got to work to get to the independence. Today, we find ourselves in Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18, where Paul is going to say some words that at first may sound like, that's not the way I get my independence. And you're right. When we look deeper, though, what he's saying is, we got to keep claiming ground. we got to keep up the fight. we got to keep working for our freedom. Because what has been declared... And what is real is that we are a free people, and yet we still got some work to do. All right. I want us to bow our heads and pray. We need God's help to figure this out. All right? Why don't you pray with me? Our Father, I just thank you so much for your word. You are so kind to us. You are a good, good Father. And we thank you. That in Jesus' name, chains are broken. And I pray that you make us a people who are committed to keep working to break those chains. But not to work on our own. To appropriate the power that you give to us to do it. Lord, we love you. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, in this text, Philippians chapter 2, Paul is going to tell us what he wants us to do in light of what we've been hearing in the past few weeks. Last week, John Mark reminded us that because Jesus, the incarnate son of God, lived a life of self-emptying love and gave his life for us, that we as a people should pursue that same kind of self-giving love by pursuing unity in a divided world. Now, before that, we talked about 2 weeks ago we talked about how God has called us To give up our preferences and give up our rights to seek unity through humility. Today, Paul's going to call on us to keep working out our salvation. Now, let me talk about what Paul is not saying. When Paul says, therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. What he is not saying is you got to do something to gain the love of God. We know that from all the writings of Paul and from the whole New Testament. That's not what Paul means. Paul does not mean you got to work to get your salvation. He's not saying that. In fact, Jesus died on the cross for your sins. You and I are separated from God because of our sin. But Jesus died to unify us again with Christ. And if we just simply open ourselves by faith to God and say, God, forgive me my sins. Help me trust in you. I give you my life. You're who I want to chase after. We respond to his grace, his gift of life. He says we are united with him forever, and nothing can separate us from the love of God. That is truth. And if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, today can be that day where you just open yourselves to God and say, God, I need you. I want you. Come renew my life. And he promises to do it. Titus 3 says he will wash you, renew you. You'll be a new person. But the journey doesn't Stop there. It starts there. So he says, Paul says here, work out your own salvation. Now I want to rely on some people that are much smarter than me. Two theologians who, who explain what they think this means. One theologian says this He says, What Paul means is show and prove oneself, what one is as a Christian, the salvation, the promised final deliverance that the Christian as such awaits. Claims the movement, the activity, the work, the life of the whole man. What he's saying is, if you are in Christ, then what God is calling you to is to a life that your whole life, everything about your being, is headed toward one thing. And that's to know more the love of Christ. Let it go deeper into your relationships, into your finances, into your work, into everything that God calls you to do. To live that out as a whole person faith for the rest of your life. Another theologian says it this way. So what Paul says here is he's, what he's saying is figure out, calculate, and reckon it up what your kind of salvation will mean in practice. Caesar offered one kind of salvation, live under my rule and I will look after you, a kind of global protection racket. The salvation Jesus offered was of quite a different type. And it is up to communities of Christians to work out how to live within it. More particularly, they must bear in mind their calling to live as lights in the dark world. I going to get to that lights in the dark world in a second, but you hear what he's saying. He's saying we've got to put our heads together. We've got to think creatively and innovatively about what does it look like to work out our salvation? What does it look like to live as Christians in the world today? Now, if you're like me, over the last four months, you've been thinking about that. There's a global pandemic. How in the world do I live as a Christian in that? There's racial uprising. How do I live as a Christian in that? There's all kinds of division. How do I live as a Christian in that? And these are questions that we have to wrestle with. And we are privileged to wrestle with because we are here now. Christians for 2,000 years have tried to figure out what does it look like to live as a Christian In my day and age, how do I live now? And to wrestle with that is a privilege that we should not take for granted, but that we should take seriously. Give consideration, give thought to. Now, I don't come here today with all the answers of how to do that. I don't know everything about how to live today. What I do have, though, and what you have is the word of God to give us some light on how to live this out. And the first thing Paul starts with, after he gives exhortation to work out your salvation, is, and what animates that exhortation? In other words, what motivates it? What makes it move? A few nights ago, we allowed our son to experience maybe one of the, some might even consider one of the highlights of cinematic, of the cinematic arena. I wouldn't call it that necessarily. We watched A Bug's Life on TV. Now, A Bug's Life is an interesting show. It's about a bug. I'm not a big fan of bugs, especially in Oklahoma right now. Not a big fan of them. However, it did give me some insight, not necessarily into to bugs, why I should preserve their life or not, but into the beauty of what God has called us to do as people. Because, you see, I could draw something for you, and you may or may not appreciate it for the beauty that it is but these guys at Pixar they not only know how to draw something beautiful but then to make it move in a way that I begin to relate to its characters when Inside Out came out a few years ago I went and watched it in the theaters and bawled my eyes out you can talk to me about why later it's pretty it's a serious note Movies, animation has a way to move us, to make us relate to people who would otherwise be unlike us because they are 2D and created by people, not created by God. And yet their stories can relate to us. Animation, because it moves, moves us. And what God has called us to do is to work out our salvation, but not out of our own strength. He wants to show us how to animate it. As we talk about about next, join me in the rest of uh, of verse 12. He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Now, this is an awesome truth, friends. God says, work it out. But he doesn't say, I'm going to leave you just to work it out. He says, I'm going to motivate I'm going to animate, I'm going to energize your work. This is a magnificent truth. God works in us. Everybody say, in us. God works in us. We work out, he works in. His in work greatly outdoes our outwork. But our outwork is empowered by and therefore ought to reflect the in-work he's doing in us. God works in us. God who is love. God who is truth. God who is life works in us. His love animates our love. His truth fleshes out our truth. His life forms enables, empowers, activates, gives life to our life. We are not alone, friends. This does not mean that God is the great puppeteer full of marionettes who were strung to his fingers. This is not a personality-free life that God has called us to. We are not Pinocchio to his Geppetto. Rather, it is as the life of God works in us to transform us from the inside that our lives take on a new power and joy and resolve to work in loving, righteous, just, and equitable ways to honor Jesus. This by no means is a call to a passive life. He's not saying you just float along. I'm working you. This is a call, not a call to a licentious life. You can do whatever you want. I'm still going to be there. This is a life that if we truly get the gospel, that the incarnate Son of God came, died to free us from our sin, that I'm no longer a slave to it, that its chains are broken, that I'm going to appropriate that grace in every area of my life for the rest of my life because Jesus reigns. This is a call to an active A righteous, loving life of doing everything in my power to know Jesus, to love Jesus, to honor Jesus, knowing that his power infuses my life with the energy to work. What does that work look like? Well, Paul continues. Both to will and to work for what? Say it out loud. I didn't hear you in your living room. His good pleasure. His good pleasure. Let's just sit there for a second, friends. God's good pleasure. God's good desires. What does God want? What does God want? You've read your Bibles? What does God want? Mr. Webb's got it. Y'all listening? Peace. God says, I want to fill the world with my peace. I want all of creation to enjoy welfare, abundance, provision. God's heart is love. I don't want you seeking after what only brings you joy. I want you running after the joy of everyone else around you. And as you do it, I'm going to refresh you. I'm going to give you what you need. God has on his heart justice, where every single individual is treated with dignity and love and respect. That's on God's heart. That's what God desires. Now, apart from him, I don't even want those things. But with him, with God working in me, he says, I will give you, in you, the will. To want what I want. The will to desire what I desire. I'm going to break your heart for what breaks mine. When you see brokenness in the world. I'm going to give you a desire to go fix it. And I'm going to go empower you to do it. Because I'm working in you. The same power that rose Jesus from the dead. Is the power that works in you. Isn't that awesome? Not only does God give us. God, through Paul, gave us an exhortation. Not only does he give us the animation, the motivation, but then he shows us some implications. So, you ready? Let's jump into verse 14. Do all things without grumbling or disputing that you may be blameless and innocent. Children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and Twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. What is what is Paul saying here? Well, we have some, have some negatives here, but I think we also have some implied positives. Let's look first to the negatives. He says, do everything without grumbling. Stop complaining. That's what are you saying? Stop complaining. Stop thinking the world is all the way out of control. Now, this is convicting to me, friends. I felt out of control the last four months. Totally out of control. I'm going to my emotions half the time. But it's not a place to despair. We don't have to complain and grumble. Why? Because Jesus is still on the throne. The one before whom every knee is going to bow. Every tongue is going to confess He is Lord. He reigns right now. And we have the opportunity to have a relationship with him. There's no need to complain, to grumble. But only they he says, do everything without disputing. The word here is basically talking about stop arguing over petty stuff. Stop arguing over petty stuff. Why? Because when you do, what you're doing, really, is you're saying, I value my preferences more than I do you. I value my opinions more than I do this relationship. And he's saying, hey, that's not the way to do life. Why? Because I don't have a right anyway. God has already called us to a radical humility that submits my preferences below yours. And so he calls me to stop disputing about this stuff. So what's the positive? I think what God's calling us to here is two things. One, a radical contentment, a radical contentment, and second, to a radical humility. Now, radical contentment, where are we getting this from? Well, why do we grumble and complain? We grumble and complain because I don't think I'm going to get what I need. I feel like, God, you are not in control. I don't trust you to meet my needs. I think you're holding something back from me. When we grumble, what we're doing is we're expressing a distrust in God's sovereignty, a distrust in God's control, a distrust in God's capacity, a distrust in God's ability, a distrust in God's omniscience, a distrust in God's kindness, a distrust in God's love. God loves you. He loves me. Which means there is no good thing he's going to withhold from us. Which means there's no need to complain. No need to grumble. No need. Because God has promised to meet my needs. He's promised to do it. And in fact, when we keep reading, we see what that looks like. Look, 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 what, look what Paul calls us. Right after he says you may be blameless and innocent, he says you are children of God. This is why we can be radically content. We can be radically content even while pouring ourselves out concretely for other people because we have a father in heaven who has promised to meet all of our needs we can be radically content with nothing and don't think that paul is talking as like a middle to upper class person who has everything he needs they can just say live a simple life because he's already got it taken care of he's writing from house arrest he's got nothing he's totally at the mercy of christians who are going to come and bring him food He's got nothing. And he can say, stop grumbling, stop complaining. Why? Because he's got a God, a father who sees him, who knows him, who desires to offer him love and who proved it by going all the way to the cross for him and dying to meet his, his, his most important need, which was broken relationship with God. So we can totally trust God to meet our needs without grumbling or complaining. What is he saying about? disputing he's saying the positive is live in humility live in humility because like we mentioned before when i'm not being humble when i'm disputing i'm saying i care more about this preference than i do about you now in paul's day the churches were arguing about all kinds of things days of observance clean and unclean food places of honor in the church service often this can take the form of me and my tribe are the righteous ones i want to call us to think about what petty stuff are we arguing about? What petty stuff keeps you up at night? Isn't this an opportunity to submit our preferences to one another? To remember that if, if God is on the throne, then that means that he can take care of me. We can be radically humble. Because even if people should talk about us, even if we don't get our preference, even if my opinion isn't the one that's highlighted, our daddy's in the heaven heavens and gives us all the affirmation, all the approval we could ever need. Because we are children of God, we can be radically content and radically humble. And friends, there's more implications. Because when you do this, when we practice this, when we work out our salvation in this way, we appropriate the grace of God in this way. You know what's going to happen? We're going to look like lights in the world. Shine like the stars in the universe. We're going to be luminous. We're going to be brilliant. Maybe not smart, but brilliant. We're going to shine. Let's unpack that. This is our calling from Jesus. Jesus in Matthew chapter 5 said, you are the light of the world. Friends, you are the light of the world. He says, let your light shine before others that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. We are to shine. And we do shine. As we give ourselves to the the good, rewarding, fitting work of abiding in the love of God in Christ, clinging to Jesus who is holding on to us, we shine. His light breaks forth in the dark world. This is the light that does a couple things. Light exposes what is evil. Friends, we must be a people that shine light on dark places. Where there is injustice, we don't overlook it. We speak the truth about it. We acknowledge the places where we have been complicit in the injustice. And we work the work of repentance and repair that makes it right and just as it ought to be. We should be leading in this work because the light resides in us. Light also reveals what is beautiful. We must be a people who are everywhere holding up the aspects of our world that rightly reflect, even if dimly, the glorious reality of God's work in the world. We are a people who find beauty in the most hideous places. We worship in prison, it's our heritage, even when we're falsely accused and con- falsely convicted. We're the ones who smile at the future, even when we are unsure where the next check is coming from. Because for millennia, God has been paying the light bills of his saints. For millennia, he's been serving up manna to his children he loves. We're the ones who, when we call our representatives to demand justice for the oppressed, we speak with kindness to the aide who answers the phone because they also bear the image of the Almighty. We're the ones who, when we get those pesky, anonymous phone calls, the one that had the same six first digits as my number. When we pick up the phone, we remind those folks by our attitude and our vocal inflection that they too are created with inherent dignity and worth. Why? Because we have the light in us. We're the light people. And God, the God of light, is at work in you. Now that I've been talking, I hope you've been thinking about what does it look like for me to live this out. And I hope, I hope, I hope we don't waste time regretting past decisions and thinking about meditating on how much of a failure I've been in this week. That could be a temptation for some of us. Don't waste time on that. Throw yourself on the mercy of God. Say, Lord, thank you for your kindness in showing me your grace. And take communion. remembering that his forgiveness is his work. And let's continue to entrust ourselves to a good God who loves us and who energizes us and motivates us and animates us for the good work he's called and prepared in advance for us to do. I think the last thing that Paul says here that the Holy Spirit calls to us is not only to have a radical contentment and a radical humility, but to have a radical joy, a radical joy. Look at verses 17 and 18. Paul says, even if I am to be poured out, As a drink offering, upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. Now theologians debate about what what Paul's talking about here. He's talking about you think his death is coming soon, or he's talking about just his suffering, his his suffering at the hands of the Romans in his prison. The, The jury still could be out on that specific question. But I think the implications are the same. Whether Paul is going to continue to suffer or whether he's going to die, what he's saying is, I rejoice and I am glad. I am glad that I'm able to pour myself out as you pour yourselves out for the Lord. I am. I rejoice that I'm able to give myself fully to the work of helping you grow, as you give yourself fully to the work of knowing God. Paul's saying, even in my arrest, even in my suffering, maybe even even in my martyrdom, I can rejoice because I know that the one who works in me and the one who works in you is the one who will keep my soul even through death. Friends, we got a lot of work to do. And we can't do that work in our own strength. I'm not going to say that if we do, we're going to get exhausted. We're going we're to get exhausted either way. But we're going to exhaust ourselves with our own energy which is kind of fickle. Or we're going to exhaust ourselves in the power of God that will strengthen us and raise us back up and keep us on the road of obedience. I think that's what God's calling us to. I think that's what this world needs. I think that's what South Oklahoma City needs, is a people who know the work that God's doing in them, and who are steadfastly committed to it until that day when it's revealed that it was worth it. Last week, we celebrated Juneteenth, a day in which slaves across the South, specifically starting in Galveston, Texas, realized that they were free. On January 1st, 1963, excuse me, 1863, Abraham Lincoln pronounced with the Emancipation Proclamation that all persons held as slaves, this is in some of the states, rebellious states, are and henceforth shall be free. And I was doing some research on that, and I, I found this this little paragraph from the National Archives that I want to share with you that that was powerful for me in thinking about these words from Philippians chapter 2. In writing about the Emancipation Proclamation, they said this, that although the Emancipation Proclamation did not end slavery in the nation, it captured the hearts and imagination of millions of Americans and fundamentally transformed the character of the war. After January 1, 1863, every advance of federal troops expanded the domain of freedom. Moreover, the proclamation announced the acceptance of black men into the Union Army and Navy. took this out. Enabling the liberated to become liberators. By the end of the war, Almost 200,000 black soldiers and sailors had fought for the Union and freedom. You catch that? The liberated became the what? The liberators. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. You and me have been liberated. Freed from the penalty of our sin, which frees us to work and work and work, to to root out the sin in us, and to root out the effects of sin around us. The liberated have become the liberators, but not in their own strengths, as the liberating God Works in them. 2,000 years ago, our salvation was secured when Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity, died on the cross for our sins and rose from the dead. He is coming back, and the final ceremony will be unlike any other. It will be a time in which the fire of God's holy love will extinguish evil from all of creation. All who have received God's gift of life by faith in Jesus will be purified and made forever holy and blameless. Sin will no longer reign, and there will be no more bondage to any tyrannical forces. Until then, we work out our salvation, giving honor to the true Lord who made heaven and earth. We live lives that are deeply and wholly dependent upon him. And we do all this by his power, which works mightily within us. To make us radically content, radically humble, radically joyful. And this labor, my friends, will prove to not have been in vain. Why don't you bow your heads with me as you prepare to respond to the Lord's Supper? Our Father, I thank you so much that You are a liberating God who wants to make us rebels into liberators. God, would you help us to entrust ourselves continually to your goodness, to your will, to your love, so that we might grace upon grace. Experience more your transforming love to be instruments of your peace in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name.